0: Chapter 7, Parts 10 and 11 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording, while LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnall Burie chapter seven part ten the carthaginian invasion of sicily and the battle of hymera a quarrel between theron of acragus and tyrillus tyrant of hymera led up to the catastrophe which might easily prove fatal to the freedom of all the sicilian greeks the ruler of acragus crossed the island and drove tyrillus out of hymera the exiled tyrant in Anaxillus of Regium. But Regium was no match for the combined power of Acragus and Syracuse, and so Tyrillus sought the help of Carthage, the common enemy of all. Carthage was only waiting for the opportunity. She had been making preparations for a descent on Sicily, and the appeal of Tyrillus merely determined the moment and the point of her attack. Tyrillus urging the Phoenician against Hymera plays the same part as Hippias urging the Persian against Athens. But in neither case is a tyrant's fall the cause of the invasion. The motive of the Carthaginian expedition against Sicily at this particular epoch is to be found in a far higher range of politics than the local affairs of Hymera or the interests of a petty despot there can hardly be a doubt that the great king and the Carthaginian Republic were acting in concert, and that it was deliberately planned to attack, independently but at the same moment, eastern and western Greece. While the galleys of the elder Phoenicia, under their Persian master, sailed to crush the elder Helias, the galleys of the younger Phoenician city would cross over on her own account against the younger Helias, In the Phoenicians of Tyre and Sidon, Xerxes had willing intermediaries to arrange with Carthage the plan of enslaving or annihilating Hellas. The western island mattered little to Xerxes, but it mattered greatly to him that the lord of Syracuse should be hindered from sending a powerful succour in men and ships to the mother country. We have already seen how the mother country sought the help of Gelon, and how the danger of Sicily forced him to refuse. When the preparations were complete, Hamilcar, the sophit of Carthage, sailed with a large armament, and landed at Panormus for the call of Teralus determined that the recovery of Hymeria should be the first object. It is said that the army consisted of 300,000 men, conveyed by more than 200 galleys and 3,000 transports but we can lay no stress on these figures from panormus this great host moved along the coast to Hymera, accompanied by the warships and proceeded to besiege the city which theron was himself guarding with a large force the sea camp lay on the low ground between the hill of Hymera and the beach the land camp stretched along the low hills on the western side of the town a sally of the besieged resulted in loss, and Theron sent a message to Syracuse to hasten the coming of his son-in-law. With fifty thousand foot-soldiers and five thousand horsemen, Gelon marched to the rescue without delay. He approached the town on the east side, and formed a strong camp on the right bank of the river. The decisive battle was brought about in a strange way, if we can trust the story. Hamilcar determined to enlist the gods of his foes on his own side He appointed a day for a great sacrifice to Poseidon near the shore of the sea For this purpose it was needful to have Greeks present who understood how the sacrifice should be performed Accordingly Hamilcar wrote to Salinas which had become a dependency of Carthage Bidding that city send horsemen to the Punic camp by a fixed day the letter fell into the hands of Gelon, and he conceived a daring stratagem. On the morning of the appointed day, a band of Syracusan horsemen stood at the gate of the sea camp, professing to be the expected contingent from Salinas. The Carthaginians could not distinguish strangers of Syracuse from strangers of Salinas, and they were admitted without suspicion. They cut down Hamilcar by the altar of Poseidon, and they set fire to the ships. All this was visible from the high parts of the town above them, and men posted their signal to Gelon the success of the plan. The Greek commander immediately led his troops round the south side of the city, against the land camp of the enemy. There the battle was fought, a long and desperate struggle, in which the scale was finally turned in favour of the Greeks, by a body of men which Theron sent round to take the barbarians in the rear. The victory was complete, the great expedition was utterly destroyed, the chief himself was slain. But of the death of that chieftain, the Carthaginians had another and a far grander tale to tell. This tale does not explain how the battle was brought about, it simply gives us a splendid picture. The battle rages from the morning till the late evening, and during that long day Hamilcar stands at the altar of Baal. IN HIS CAMP BY THE SEA. A GREAT FIRE DEVOURS THE BURNT OFFERINGS TO THE GOD. VICTIM AFTER VICTIM, WHOLE BODIES OF BEASTS, AND PERHAPS OF MEN, ARE FLUNG INTO THE FLAMES, AND THE OMENS ARE FAVORABLE TO CARTHAGE. BUT AS HE IS POURING OUT A DRINK OFFERING, HE LOOKS FORTH, AND BEHOLD HIS ARMY IS PUT TO FLIGHT. THE MOMENT FOR A SUPREME SACRIFICE HAS COME. HE LEAPS INTO THE FIRE, AND THE FLAMES CONSUME HIM. The offering of his life did not retrieve the day. But hereafter, Hymera was destined to pay a heavy penalty for the death of Hamilcar. The common significance of the battles of Salamis and Hymera, or the repulse of Asia from Europe, was appreciated at the time, and naively expressed in the fanciful tradition that the two battles were fought on the same day. But Hymera, unlike Salamis, was immediately followed by a treaty of peace. Carthage paid the lord of Syracuse two thousand talents as a war indemnity, but this was a small treasury compared with the booty taken in the camp. Out of a portion of that spoil, a beautiful issue of large silver coins was minted, and called Damaritian, after Gelon's wife, and some pieces of this memorial of the great deliverance of Sicily are preserved. Section eleven. Syracuse and Acragas, under Hieron and Theron. Theron and Acragas had played an honorable part in the deliverance of Sicily, though it was a part which was second to that of Gelon and Syracuse. Theron survived the victory by eight years, and during that time he was engaged in doing for Acragas what had been already done for Syracuse by his fellow tyrant the enlargement of the Syracusian and the Acrantinian cities were effected by opposite processes. Syracuse had sprung up a hill. acragus which was perched aloft on a height, sprang down the slope. The enlarged city was encompassed by a wall, of which nature had already done half the building. The most striking feature of the new city was the southern wall stretching between the rivers and lined by a row of temples theron laid the foundations of the temples along the wall but it was not till long after his death that they were completed and the line of holy building shone forth in all its glory in all this work and in the watercourses which he also constructed theron had slave labour in abundance the barbarians who had been captured after the battle of Hymera. Theron placed rescued Hymeria, under the government of his son, Thrasidius, who, however, unlike Theron himself, proved an oppressor and was hated by the citizens. Meanwhile, Gelon died, and left the fruits of his enterprise and statesmanship to be enjoyed by his brother, Heron. While Heron was to have the sovereign power, Gelon decided that Polyxalus, whom he ordered to marry his widow, Damaretta, should have the supreme command of the Syracusian army. The idea of this dual system was unwise, and it necessarily led to fraternal discord. Polysalis was popular at Syracuse, and his double connection with Theron secured him the support of that tyrant. To Theron he seemed a dangerous rival, and in the end he was compelled to seek refuge at Acragus, this led to an open breach between heron and Theron, but it did not come to actual war. And it is said that the lyric poet Simonides, who was a favourite at both courts, acted as peacemaker. War between the two chief cities of Sicily did not come to after Theron's death, and then it brought freedom to Acragus. Heron may be said to have completed the work of Hymera, by the defeat which he inflicted upon the Etruscans at Syme. Etruscans were the other rival power which, besides the Carthaginians, threatened the greater Greece of the west. The possession of the northern outpost of Hellas on the Italian coast, the colony of Syme, was one of the greatest objects of Etruscan politics. And three or four years after the accession of heron it was pressed hard by a Tuscan squadron. Hieron was a statesman of a sufficiently large view to answer the prayer of Syme for help. The Syracusan fleet sailed to the spot and defeated the besiegers. From this time, the Etruscan power rapidly declined and ceased to menace the development of western Greece. From the booty, Hieron sent a bronzed helmet to Olympia, and this precious memorial of one of the glorious exploits of Greece, is now in the great London collection of antiquities. More precious still is the song in which Pindar of Thebes immortalised the victory. It is perhaps from the hymns of Pindar that we win the most lively impression of the wealth and culture of the courts of Sicily in the 5th century. Pindar, like other illustrious poets of the day, Simonides and Bacchylides and Aeschylus visited sicily to bask in the smiles and receive the gifts of the tyrant the lord of syracuse or king as he aspired to be styled sent his racehorses and chariots to contend in the great games at olympia and delphi and he employed the most gifted lyric poets to celebrate these victories in lordy odes pindar and Bacchylides was sometimes set to celebrate the same victory in rival strains. These poets give us an impression of the luxury and magnificence of the royal courts and the generosity of the royal victors. Syracuse, on whose adornment her tyrants could spend the Punic spoils, and acragas fairest of the cities of men, seemed wonderful to the visitors from elder Greece. Yet amid all their own magnificence, and amid their absorbing political activity, the princes of this younger western world coveted above all things that their name should be glorious in the mother country. They still looked to the holy place of Delphi as the central sanctuary of the world, and they enriched it with costly dedications. The golden tripod, which Gelon and his brother dedicated from Punic treasure, became, like the other golden things of Delphi, the loot of robbers. But we are reminded of that fraternal union by a precious bronze charioteer, which was dug up recently in the ruins of the Delphic Sanctuary. It was dedicated by Polyxalus, perhaps in honour of a Pythian victory. It were easy to be blinded by the outward show of these princely tyrants, which the genius of Pindar has invested with a certain dignity, But Pindar, himself born of a noble family, cherished the ideas and prejudices of a bygone generation. He belonged to a class. He wrote chiefly for a class whose days were past. Nobles whose sole aim in life was to win victories at the public games. These men were out of sympathy with the new ideas and the political tendencies of their own age. They were belated survivals of an earlier society. Pindar sympathized with them. He liked aristocracies best. He accepted monarchy even in the form of tyranny. But democracy he regarded as the rule of the mob's passions. The despots of Sicily and Cyrene supported the national games of Greece, and that was in truth their great merit in the eyes of the poet. The chariot race, the athletic contests seen in the midst of a gay crowd then the choral dance and song in honor of the victory and the corrals in the hall perhaps of some noble agent burgher. these were the delightful things in hellas which to pindar were the breath of life he was religious to the heart's core and all these things were invested with the atmosphere of religion but allowing for this we feel that he takes the games too seriously AND THAT WHEN OSILUS WAS WRESTLING WITH THE DEEP PROBLEMS OF LIFE AND DEATH, THE DAY WAS PASSED FOR REGARDING AN OLYMPIAN VICTORY AS THE GRANDEST THING IN THE WORLD. WE MUST NOT BE BEGUILED BY PINDAR'S MAJESTIC ART INTO ASCRIBING TO THE TYRANTS ANY HIGH MORAL PURPOSE. IT WAS ENOUGH THAT THEY SHOULD ASPIRE TO AN OLYMPIAN CROWN, AND INCUR THE NECESSARY OUTLAY, AND SEEK IMMORTALITY FROM THE POET'S CRAFT the poet could hardly dare to demand a higher purpose. Fair as the outside of a Syracusan state might seem to a favoured visitor who was entertained in the tyrant's palace, underneath there was no lack of oppression and suspicion. The system of spies which hereon organised to watch the lives of his private citizens tells its own tale. One of his most despotic acts was his dealing with the city of Caten, He deported all the inhabitants to Leontini, peopled the place with new citizens, and gave it the name of Etna. His motive was partially vanity, partially selfish prudence. He aspired to be remembered and worshipped as the founder of a city, and he also intended Etna to be a stronghold of refuge to himself or his dynasty, in case a day of jeopardy should come his son, Denomenes, was installed as king of Etna. But the Dorian city of Etna, so cruelly founded, though it was celebrated in lofty praises by Pindar, and had the still higher honour of supplying the motive of a play of Aeschylus, had but a short duration. It was soon to become Caten again. At Acris, the mild rule of Theron seems to have secured the love and trust of his fellow-citizens. But at Himera he showed what a tyrant might do by slaughtering without any mercy those who had showed their discontent at the rule of his son. Neither the Syracusan nor the Acrantine dynasty endured long. After Theron's death, Thrasydias misruled Acragas, as he had already misruled Himera. But for some unknown reason he had the folly to go to war with Heron who discomfited him in a hard-fought battle. This defeat led to his fall. Hymera became independent, and acragus adopted a free constitution. The Deliverance of Syracuse came about five years later. When Heron died, his brother Thrasypolis took the reins of government, and, being a less able and dexterous ruler than Hieron, he soon excited a revolution by his executions and confiscations the citizens rose in a mass and obtaining help from other sicilian cities besieged the tyrant and his mercenaries in syracuse he was ultimately forced to surrender and retire into private life in a foreign land thus the tyranny at syracuse came to an end and the feast of Eleuthero was founded to preserve the memory of the dawn of freedom The rule of the despots seems to have wiped out the old feud between the nobles and the commons, but a new strife arose instead. The old citizens, nobles and commons alike, distrusted the new citizens, whom Gellon had gathered together from all quarters. A civil war broke out. For some time the old citizens were excluded from both the island and Acredina. But in the end all the strangers were driven out and the democracy of Syracuse was securely established. One good thing the tyrants had done, they had obliterated the class distinctions which had existed before them, and thus the cities could now start afresh, on the basis of political equality for all. The next half-century was a period of weal and prosperity for the republics of Sicily, especially for the greatest among them, Syracuse and acragas and for silenus freed from the phoenician yoke at acragus the free people carried to completion the works which their beneficent tyrant had begun the stately row of temples along the southern wall belongs to this period it was a grand conception to line the southern wall the wall most open to the attacks of mortal enemies with this wonderful series of holy places of the divine protectors of the city it was a conception due, we may believe, in the first instance to Theron, but which the democracy fully entered into and carried out. But her sacred buildings brought less glory to Acragus than the name of the most illustrious of her sons. The poet and philosopher Empedocles was reared in what he describes as the great town above the yellow river of Acragus. He was not only a profound philosopher— an inspired poet a skilful physician but he had lent his hand to the reform of the constitution of his city unhappily his personality is lost in the dense covert of legends which quickly grew up around him the true empedocles who banished from his home died quietly in the penoponessus becomes a seer and a magician who hurled himself into the bowl of etna that he might become a god a god indeed he proclaims himself to be going about from city to city crowned with delphic wreaths and worshipped by men and women for a time indeed the saseliots were threatened with a remarkable danger the revival of the native power of the Cecils. this revival was entirely due to the genius of one man and the danger disappeared on his death Jusettius organized a federation of the Cecil towns and aspired to bring the Greek cities under Cecil rule. He displayed his talent in the foundation of new cities, which survived the failure of his schemes. His first settlement was on the hilltop of Menaeum, overlooking the sacred lake and temple of the Pallisai. As his power and ambitions grew, he descended from the hill and founded Palliser, close to the national sanctuary, to be a political capital of the nation. He captured Etna, gained victory over the Acrogantines and Syracusians, but was subsequently defeated by Syracuse, and on this defeat his followers deserted him, and the fabric which he had reared collapsed. He boldly took refuge himself at the altar in the Syracusian marketplace. His case was debated in the assembly, and, by an act of clemency, which we might hardly expect, he was spared and sent to Corinth. Five years later we find him again in Sicily, engaged in the congenial work of founding a third city, Acte or Fair Shore, on the northern coast, with the approbation of Syracuse. It is uncertain whether he dreamed of repeating his attempt at a national revival, or had become convinced that the fortune of the Sicil Lay in the Hellenian nation. His foundations were more abiding than those of Heron. One of them, Minoe, survives today. The career of Dusetius exhibited the decision of destiny that the Greek was to predominate in the island of the Sicils. End of chapter seven, parts ten and eleven.